0: This is an ABC podcast. Technology's great, isn't it? Especially when it just works. And I guess for a lot of us, that's all we ask of technology, that it just works. We don't have the time to get all nerdy about the design or the ethics of its various applications. We just want it to work. And that's whether it's a car or a dishwasher or an app or a computer. But sometimes focusing exclusively on the mechanical utility of technology can make us a little vulnerable. This is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the program.
1: Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. i read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal.
0: I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Hal? Well, for those of you who haven't seen Stanley Kubrick's classic film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and if you haven't, you really should, what's going on here is a tense standoff between Dave, the astronaut, and Hal, the onboard computer. Hal is a good example of technology on which human survival literally depends. He controls all aspects of the running of the spaceship, including the life support systems for the astronauts. But when things go wrong, it turns out that HAL has been designed to place the importance of the astronauts' mission over and above the lives of those astronauts. And that comes as a nasty surprise to Dave, who had previously thought of HAL as nothing more than a subservient machine. Well the film was made in 1968 and 50 years later many of us are still inclined to view our technology according to the metaphor of the machine, the thing that just works. But according to today's guest there's a better metaphor, one taken from history and one that could make us a whole lot more savvy about such ethically ambiguous contemporary technologies as social media. It was an object
1: built in the late 18th century called the Mechanical Turk and it was essentially an automaton, it was like a robotic looking person that played chess. People would play chess against this automaton and it would beat people who were prodigious chess players. So people were completely awestruck by this seemingly intelligent technical device. Of course the issue was is that there was a person hiding under the framework who was literally pulling the strings. And it was a sophisticated fraud. In my view, the Mechanical Turk is probably a far better metaphor for the sort of technological interface when you go towards Facebook than is the mechanism on its own.
0: Jason Tuckwell, he's a lecturer in philosophy at Western Sydney University with an interest in technology and art. He makes the point that the Greek root of our word technology is techne, which means skill. Techne is a word that often crops up in Aristotle. And Aristotle is a figure that Jason Tuckwell finds very useful in thinking about technology today.
1: Aristotle tried to think about technology in a way that's a little bit unfamiliar to us now. And how he tried to think about it was essentially in the terms of a craftsperson he had a lot of favorite examples about this he talked a lot about shipbuilding and about house building and essentially what he's trying to get at here is that technology is a way that human agents change the world around them after their own design and this is the really key idea that aristotle is trying to talk about here because aristotle had a complex notion of causes and one of his original contributions was to think that purpose or intention or design was required to explain how things come into being, if you like. And if you're going to be a shipbuilder and you want to make a good ship, you need buoyant material and you need a skill to shape the craft so it will move through the water. But it also really importantly means what it's for. So a ship is to transport people. So in that sense for him, uh, technology really means how we can intervene in the world in such a way that will affect other agents.
0: So what we're talking about today then is the way in which technology is understood in a more contemporary sense as mechanism, this mechanistic metaphor of technology. Can you outline this metaphor and how does it differ from technology in the Aristotelian sense that we've been talking about? The mechanistic metaphor is where you
1: take the technical object itself and use that as a metaphor to understand what technology means. This sort of mechanism was certainly not uh, foreign to the Greeks and there were many examples in Greek culture. They had a word for this even called the automaton or automata and they were ingenious devices that essentially acted of their own will. So, they were powered by water or by fire, and they would be moving statues of people and birds and even water organs and things like that. So, that certainly existed for them. However, there's been a transformation since then, and this especially happens in the early modern period and the rise of rationalism, and especially with Descartes, who turned this metaphor quite a bit around and said that rather than there being a purposive cause, like a design in a human agent, that the technical object in itself is the metaphor or model for how nature works. Now, his target here was a very particular idea Aristotle had which was that if human agents are capable of having a purpose and shaping design, then he reasoned that nature must have this principle. Now, obviously this was an obstacle for the rationalist because the only possible explanation or where that goes is to a sort of transcendental location for this, i.e. there's some sort of creator God and they're trying to move beyond this idea. So when uh, Descartes performs this transformation, the technical object then is the metaphor that's applied to living bodies, to human bodies and to other animal bodies.
0: So how does this then affect the way that we think about technology today? I mean, if technology is largely understood in this mechanistic sense, is, are you talking about the way in which it, it lacks any kind of human agency where you know a piece of technology is, is like an automaton, if you like, in, in the minds of most people? Yes, I think that that's precisely it. I
1: mean, I I think to me, it it seems to generate this very, almost a perverse effect. So it's one thing to claim that nature is based on rules and that there's a sort of materialistic basis for the universe and that makes it knowable. And science has been very, very successful in uh, using that idea to make very powerful interventions and understandings about what sort of beings we are and how the world works. However, if you keep following that mechanistic metaphor, and there are uh, people who do this quite explicitly, like someone like Gilbert Simondon, you start to try to think of the emergence of the technical object itself as sort of like the way nature produces things. And I don't think that's explicitly the case for most people. I think Simon Don is quite radical there. But it does seem to linger in the way that we look at technical objects because when we engage with them, we don't seem to have this prompt about the fact that they were created by somebody with an intended purpose or a design. Um, And I think that has a lot of uh, contemporary consequences in how we're trying to grapple with present technology that is patently having all these very diverse and disruptive effects on society and culture and social relations and the natural world.
0: Yeah, I'd like to get onto those consequences um, in a little while. But uh, at this point, though, it might be useful to bring in the relationship between technology and art, because that—that's there's an interesting parallel there, isn't there, with, with what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, there certainly was for Aristotle. Um, it's a very significant relationship to him, and I guess this is clarified, by this sense of craft or skill. Aristotle would not have made the distinction between art and technology that we do. Um, Artist was not something that existed in an art gallery. Art is a causal problem for him about essentially, how is it possible that a human being can make something new, whether it's a boat or whether it's carpentry or whether it's a painting or a sculpture. So for him, the concept of technology and art are very, very close in the sense they're quite indistinguishable. It says something about the intervention of our focus on objects, I think, rather than on skill or processes, what you need to do to make something happen, that really reflects how that relationship between technology and art for us is quite broken in in the sense that You see this manifestation in uh, the academy or the university, which is quite clear, where the humanities seem to be quite divorced from the idea of technology and technology is something instrumental. But it's this question of skill that still remains a way to link them together that I think that would be useful to reincorporate into our
0: understanding. And as you've pointed out, the problem with this divorce, if you like, between technology and and human purpose uh, for for art is that when we focus on the work of art, like the, the novel or the painting in its genre or its school of production, you know, when we look at it through the lens of, of various isms, which I think is an outwork of, of what you're saying, then we lose sight of the agent, we lose sight of the artist in much the same way that the, the mechanistic understanding of technology causes us to lose sight of the human agency behind that technology. Is that what we're looking at here? Yes, I absolutely see that as one of the
1: consequences. It's one of the issues that could be raised about aesthetics in general. And the art historical mode, which really emphasises the object, and in a way you could see it in this, in this the example of the term we have for the work of art. I think is really encapsulates that. We use the word the work of art as though it's synonymous, or that it sort of confla- this conflation between the processes that are required to bring a work of art into being and the work itself, as though there's no distinction between the two. It is absolutely the case that if you want to make categorical determinations about sorts of artworks, if you want to split them up into different movements, if you want to talk about in painting, for example, if you want to talk about portraiture and landscape, and then you want to move on to a modernist frame where you talk about abstract expressionism or minimalism, that's very helpful. But the reality is that in their historical development, that that there are no such clear distinctions between how these works came into being, if you want to understand what people were doing in their creative practice to bring these works into being. And I think what happens or we risk doing there is not really interrogating the question of art itself.
0: So why is interrogating art itself something that we need to do?
1: The reason that we want to understand art in this regard, in my view, is because there's a distinction or there is a conflation between originality and creativity that's very prevalent in the work of art. This is the case of somebody like Roland Barthes, who talked about The notion that there is no creativity in art that all art is a certain pastiche and this happens when you sort of retroactively look back at a series of works and it's very much of the effect when you look at how you can categorize them one from the other and from that perspective there is no question that you can see how each artwork responds to each other and takes influence or brings different elements forward from the history of art, and that's part of the creative process. My objection to that idea as a way of understanding what art is, and I would make a distinction here about art, is that that doesn't tell you anything about how it is possible that the work comes into being in the first place. And this is what I think the Aristotelian frame encourages you to do, is that what you are trying to think of is a causal mechanism how it is possible in the first place and i see that that remains as important a necessity in the work of art as it is in the context of trying
0: to better understand technology on rn you're in the philosopher's zone with me david rutledge and my guest is jason tuckwell from western sydney university we're talking technology and the importance of the metaphors we use when we think about the gear that we use Today, we're living in an increasingly mechanised and automated world. So it, it makes sense that we would understand technology in terms of mechanism and automation, or at least it gives it a certain inevitability. Why are these metaphors so problematic, do you think? The really important thing to
1: state first is the mechanistic metaphor is extraordinarily powerful and it's an extraordinary explanatory tool for understanding the natural world. And I think that that's been shown in a really rigorous way and we owe an incredible amount to understanding nature in that context. And I will give an endorsement here to the Cartesian observation that perhaps there is not a formal cause in nature. And when I say formal cause, that there is not a design principle that sees us as already coming into existence. And the reason I think that that's so essential is because obviously, if that is the case, then it really queries the idea of any truly creative force because everything is already predetermined. The problem with that is that that mode of thinking ends up then getting reapplied to human agents. And this becomes very strange when you apply this to trying to understand the technical apparatus itself say like a telephone it's almost like the telephone just comes into being as a a natural object and quite transparently there are design principles at work there and very complicated ones and what we risk doing i think in that context is completely missing those elements, and there are very profound consequences for not being able to understand that. The clearest example today are the ethical conundrums that we're having with things like social media. I see that as being part of this sort of deeper schism between these two metaphors or way to understand what a technical object is.
0: What you're saying makes me think of Facebook, okay, which was Uh, first conceived as a simple communication interface by the people who use it. But increasingly, we begin to understand that there is very clear, well, actually not very clear, a sort of covert agency and a covert purpose at the design end of that technology that doesn't necessarily have the end user's best interests at heart. Is that something that plays into what you're talking about here? Yes, I think it's absolutely the case that Facebook is a very clear example
1: of what we're missing out on when we can't identify how agents are operating in technology. It almost seems uh, daily or weekly that we see new accounts of this bad behavior or bad faith actions on the part of Facebook. As you say, it was sold to us as a friendly community in a way of getting people to interact over the sort of tyrannies of distance and time. And I suppose in a a sense, this was really one of the early observations about technology that someone like Marshall McLuhan raised, where one of the profound things technologies do is that they change the relations between time and space between agents. And that's an incredibly potent thing that they do. But under this sort of guise of this social good, we've learnt that Facebook's use of user profiling has been used for very nefarious purposes. I think we understood this sort of tacitly uh, at first as a sort of commercial venture to sell us advertising. And I think at first for a lot of people that seemed to be a fair sort of cost for what was, in inverted commas, a free service. But we've learnt now that This sophisticated profiling has been used for a lot of different sorts of gains and exploitation than financial
0: profit. And this is very concerning. So, it's important then for us to understand technology in terms of intentional actors, someone behind the curtain, if you like. And to help us do that, you want to restore an earlier metaphor of technology. Is, is this a question of going back to this Aristotelian idea of, of the craftsperson? Is this something you want to uh, renew an emphasis on?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's important to qualify, again, uh, just to pick up on the point we said before, mechanism is very important and it's a really useful explanatory tool. But the craftsperson is another very useful explanatory tool Uh, what it helps us to understand or what it prompts us to do is to think about who the designing agent is when we engage with a technological object and that's precisely what the mechanistic metaphor does not allow us to do so my proposal would be to think about not replacing the metaphor of mechanism What we need to do is to generate a more complex metaphor or complex relationship between metaphors where we return to some of these Aristotelian notions or we bring them forward. When I was doing research for this new project, I came across a fascinating example that I think really in an interesting way connects together these two metaphors. It was an object built in the late, 18th century called the Mechanical Turk, and it was essentially an automaton, it was like a person, robotic-looking person that played chess. People would play chess against this automaton, and it would beat people who were prodigious chess players. It did the trade fairs for decades, and it engaged a number of very famous people, In an infamous case, it played Napoleon and Napoleon cheated against this device and the device threw the board over or swept the pieces off the table. (laughs) (laughs) So people were completely awestruck by this seemingly intelligent technical device. Of course, the issue was that there was a person hiding under the framework who was literally pulling the strings and it was a sophisticated fraud. Now, in my view, the mechanical Turk is probably a far better metaphor for the sort of technological interface when you go towards Facebook than is the mechanism on its own.
0: That brings up a, a question about the way that technology is networked these days. I mean, it, it connects large numbers of agents all over the place. And How is it possible, given that sort of networking of technology, to come up with one ethical norm that might govern how all these agents should act?
1: I think that's an incredibly hard problem. I think it's a challenge that we have to respond to. And it's a challenge, I think, that's occurring on many levels. Let's say, for instance, that there's a foreign agent who produces fake news in order to sway people's political opinions. They're a nefarious agent. They have a bad faith motivation. So to understand them ethically seems quite clear. They then go to Facebook and they buy one of these algorithmic sets that Facebook sells to people. I want to target people of this specific demographic who are on a particular part of the political spectrum that you've identified that are vulnerable to uh, suggestive ideas. And you can buy these sorts of very specific target groups. Facebook sell them to you as part of their business model. So then you have the question of the commercial agency or this indifference or this capitalist ethical position or non-ethical position of the corporation. And then you have the end users who consume this fake news. Now they might be legitimately deceived in such a way that it's no longer clear whether they are good or bad faith actors. They might legitimately believe that this is a true news story and in that sense they could share that in good faith. Now. These sophisticated actors, we know one of the ways that they do this is that they take on a persona or they hide their identity in such a way that they try to identify with the group who the news is aimed at. So there are all these complications here about where along in that process bad faith action breaks down or translates into good. The problem about that is not easy to solve. I think that bringing more attention to the agency itself and to understand that there are many sections in these networked processes where agents can act and can have a purposive act is one way that we can begin to address that. I don't think it's an answer in itself, but I think that it's a beginning.
0: Yeah, it's a huge problem. And I mean, I mean, just to sum up, I guess, we, we had um, Daniel Dennett on this program a few months ago and he was making a point that... Um, the developers and designers of, of, of black box technology in particular should have some sort of responsibility and even legal liability for the outcomes of that technology. And that might make us all a little bit more cautious. So I guess what we're talking about is a similar kind of responsibility on the end users of technology to be a bit more savvy about who is developing this stuff and why they're developing it. And I guess the trouble is that the mechanistic model of technology, the the idea that, well, this just works. It just sprang out of nowhere and it just works. You know, this app on my phone, it's so cool. It just does this thing. And it's the convenience of that kind of understanding of technology and the way that that's bound up with the whole capitalist economy. You know, this stuff is sold to us because it makes our life easier. Who has the time to be investigating and delving deep into who's behind all these things and what their intentions are? So there's the problem, I guess. How confident or how hopeful are you that it can be addressed, it can be addressed in a way that's satisfactory and that actually makes a difference.
1: I think that the idea of using metaphors is promising here because of some research we've known, I suppose, at least since the 70s about confirmation bias, that factual depictions of a different way of understanding don't tend to change people's minds very much. The reason that they don't tend to is because people will reapply and reinterpret those facts to the frame of intelligence or the frame of understanding that they have. The advantage about targeting metaphors in this regard might be that it might be a way to bypass that and to start to change the frames of reference through which our understanding
0: happens. And I think that that makes targeting metaphors promising. Mm. So talking about technology in terms of craftspeople can influence the way in which people understand technology and that helps that it influences the way in which they use technology and the way that they look at the whole thing.
1: Absolutely. And I would, I guess I would say again, that this is an important role that art can perform. In a sense, I think about a film, it's a dated film now, but I think about the way that The uh, Matrix did a very good job of uh, reintroducing, I suppose, the old metaphor of the platonic simulacrum. And what it does, I think, it starts a conversation. and Human beings are social by nature. Uh, There's some very interesting recent cognitive science findings that talk about that perhaps our reason is not particularly good at assessing rule-based systems like understanding nature very well, but what it's evolutionary geared toward is ensuring that there's social cohesion. So there might be a way that our uh, reasonable faculties are gamed in a way towards trying to find agreement with those in our immediate social system. Now that obviously can be an impediment to change, but that can also mean that that's a vector for its promulgation. If we can find a way to introduce something that, it, that has, a, I suppose, enough force, or it's compelling
0: enough, that can be transmitted in that way. So I think that there's always hope. Jason Tuckwell from Western Sydney University. And on that note of hope, that's where we leave the program for this week. Find us via the ABC Listen app or any piece of podcasting technology, and you can grab literally hundreds of programs from our back catalogue. That's The Philosopher's Zone, brought to you by the good people at RN. Thanks to producer Diane Dean. Thank you for your company, and uh, I'll see you next week. I'm David Rutledge. Bye for now.